0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, March 18th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe.
1: Hi,
2: John.
0: Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So we have this horrible, uh, call it serial killing. It's not the right term since it all happened on the same day. Uh, but this uh 21 year old uh guy in Atlanta who shot up three uh, massage parlors uh in uh in Atlanta or in and around Atlanta, killing eight, six of whom were uh Asian American massage therapists, um, and we are. Now uh, a wash in a debate about this uh, dovetailing with the uh, unambiguous increase in criminal uh, assaults of Asian Americans dating back now two and a half years, something like that, um, uh, and it is now dawning on people that uh, that there is a problem in the United States with American attitudes towards Asians. Uh, but I'm going to throw this out right now and say that a uh, a deranged psychopath who goes and shoots six people because he's uh, a porn uh, sex addict and believes that they are tempting him into, you know, evil behavior and they must be stopped. Apparently he was intending, had he not been caught, to go on, drive to Florida and shoot up more, more massage parlors... Uh, uh, that his uh, set of attitudes uh, are not, the pr- that this is not the way to judge the real source of discrimination, hostility, anger, and retribution against Asian Americans, which is not merely criminal, but is this almost systematic effort by uh, good you know, uh, seemingly uh, people, uh, liberals and leftists who believe themselves to be deeply moral and deeply uh, principled, in figuring out ways and stratagems to hold Asian Americans back in public schools and at universities. Because if you don't, they're just gonna they're just gonna take all of the good positions in schools, and they're gonna take all the good slots at universities, and they are it's not fair. They're not fair. It's not fair. They work too hard or they, who knows why mysteriously half the, you know, entry class at the, at the, uh, selective high schools, uh, public high schools in New York city are made up of Asian kids. Um, all we talk about is how there aren't enough black kids, but the actual story is that white kids have been displaced by Asian kids, uh, And uh, so the effort is systematically to uh, prevent there from being selective high schools in which you can test in. And of course, we know about Harvard, the Asian American discrimination there and throughout uh, the Ivies and at public universities as well. So this is a real actual thing that is going on that people have seen going on for decades and is getting systematic. And now we are asked to say that the issue here is white supremacy and misogyny because, uh, you know, a a psychopath shot up massage parlors.
1: There's also another uh, thing that's been kind of systematic and and doesn't fit the narrative of of white supremacy, which is that in particularly in places like Oakland, California, San Francisco and a few other cities, there's been uh, violent attacks on particularly on elderly Asian residents those have largely been perpetrated by African-Americans. And the argument has been made as convoluted and absolutely irrational as it is that those black men are driven by white supremacy to attack elderly, vulnerable Asian-Americans because they heard Trump's message about the Wuhan flu. It's as bizarre as it sounds, but that is, in fact, uh, the argument. There have been rallies in cities like New York. There was one here in D.C. recently uh, against white supremacy Even though the victims of violent attacks have largely suffered from at at the hands of African American men who attack them,
2: and you know tensions in cities between um, uh, blacks and Asians is long long predates Trump by decades. That's been an ongoing issue. Look, all you have to do is watch "Do
0: the Right Thing," Spike Lee's movie made in 1989. Uh, in which there is a central conflict on this block in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, in the height of the in the height of the crime wave, uh, you know, New York City sort of sinking into the sea. In which this Korean deli um, is a locus of tension in, in the neighborhood because these these uh, and this is true every all over all over New York City has been forever. So yes, this tension is real. It all has to do with. In prior uh, decades, uh, before the small businesses in some in 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 majority black neighborhoods in say New York City were often run by Jews, and there was a lot of black Jewish tension because the Jewish shopkeepers, you know, m- might not be all that pleasant. Uh, you know you you go run a you go run a retail business for fourteen hours a day, a candy store or a bodega or something like that where, where there's kind of like standard issue pilfering, you know, I, I stole gum from a, you know, from a, from a candy store as a kid, a nice white Jewish kid, like, you know, that kind of business that you run where the margins are very slow and very small. And, you know, the people who run them are lower middle class. They don't make a lot of money. They work these insanely long hours and they're edgy and they're nasty and they're, they're tired and they're, they're annoyed and irritable and so they don't make the greatest represent representative face for their people in their day to day interactions. Sometimes with their customers, and that creates a lot of tension. Always has. It just doesn't have to be all or nothing. I mean, we can also we can say that Donald
3: Trump was not the most cautious with his rhetoric and didn't necessarily give uh, much thought to the prospect that what he was saying might be misinterpreted by people who aren't, uh, of especially, you know, well-adjusted. And also we can say that the effort to label everything and anything white supremacy is simply a heuristic that people use to reconcile their ideological contradictions. So I want to read this excerpt from NDC's Asian American vertical, um, which, uh, in which, uh, they quote an expert, a Phi Win, who says that these Asian American women who were shot were, quote, working highly vulnerable and low-wage jobs during an ongoing pandemic, which speaks directly to the compounding impacts of misogyny, structural violence, and white supremacy. Um, And it's easier to talk about this issue in terms of pure racial animus, as opposed to the guy's stated motives, according to police, which was that he was... Uh, sex-crazed, a sex-crazed maniac who believed these these uh, women represented some sort of a temptation for him. And that allows you to avoid reconciling the um, desire on the part of the left
0: to uh, normalize this sort of thing, to
3: bring it out of the shadows,
0: to open it up. Well, we should talk about that because people may not know. People may not know that there is a systematic movement um, among a, a, a certain coterie of people on the left, to say to de, uh, demoralize uh, views of 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 people who work in the sex trade, right? There is a it's a it's a it's a big thing, and they they it, it's shaming, and you don't want to shame people, and sex workers have rights too, and they shouldn't be treated this way. And uh, and it's uh, it's a it's a, a business uh, that uh, women are are find themselves in in part because they don't have other avenues to success, and so you have this wildly contradictory message, which is of course that um, uh, sex work is a form of um, uh, properly, I think, a form of brutality and some kind of misogynistic pressure on I don't know how you would just I, I'm, I'm losing my vocabulary here, but also they need to be respected. they need to get health benefits and they can have a union and and all this. It's a very weird merger of kind of left wing libertarianism and left- wing ideas about sexuality. and it's very confused, but it's 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 pretty serious. There's a whole branch of law that is dedicated to this. There, there, there's a lot of legalization efforts being made at the state and local levels on these matters, even as we live in a world that is much more um, aware of the, or, or we are told we need to be much more aware of the confluence of sex and violence. Or the way in which people like this guy seem to conflate sex and violence.
1: Well, and there's there's an inherent contradiction on the left about this, and long has been that's important to that that's actually will shed some light on on how it's being how this recent uh, tragedy is being discussed in the media in particular, and that's this idea that sex work is empowering, right? There's a kind of pro-sex feminist left that believes that sex work is empowering and all we really need are better OSHA regulations for it. But it does. And there's also a feminist left that believes like Andrew Dworkin and others have that pornography, which has normalized violent sexual imagery and, and is now readily available um, has, has normalized a kind of behavior that used to really exist only in the shadows. It's now something that can reach ever younger children. Um, it is targeted. It, and uh, the desirability factor is all towards men. There's, and these two have been fighting for a long time, these groups of feminists. And I think what's interesting is now the overlay of intersectionality throws another wrench in, the, in these arguments, because to say this is about white supremacy doesn't solve that other contradiction about sex work, right? So the, the dangers of sex work fall entirely on, on the women who perform it. Um, whether or not it's legalized or regulated, and the the idea that this is something that is empowering to women is highly questionable to I think the average American, and to call it white supremacy actually allows a certain part of the progressive left to avoid having that argument at all or dealing with it.
3: Right, but you can't you can't bury it forever. So right. Dworkin worked on legislation, sometimes successfully, to criminalize pornography. Right. She called it um, an effort to plan methodologically rape. Um, it was a strategy guide. Mm-hmm. And um, after 2017 and the Me Too movement, she enjoyed something of a renaissance on the left. Uh, she was sort of on the fringes for a very long time. Became, Not just the left.
0: Well, yeah, yeah generally. Not just the left. Um, there, There is a there is a branch of the resurgent, I don't know what you want to call them, mor- moralistic right that has embraced, you know, the sort of reactionary right or something that has embraced Dworkinism as, a, as a, a, pro, a more appropriate view of sexuality than, you know, enlight- happy the enlightenment. To sacrifice. That's all they yeah. ever say is the yeah. enlightenment. Yeah. The enlightenment. But they're people. the
3: equivalent of where Dworkin was during the sexual revolution on right. the fringes. Yeah. Um, however, it seems much more consistent philosophy um, if you're uh, the Moira Donegan sort to um, adopt a, a very uncompromising view towards prostitution and pornography as being exploitative and uh, a precursor to violence than it is to sort of have these contradictory notions that prostitution is liberating and should be protected and that, you know, this sort of thing is, is, and also that this sort of thing can happen and this is unacceptable. And I don't know how you reconcile those two views. A much more cohesive philosophy would just be Dworkinism.
0: Okay. So you you, can re- you don't have to reconcile it. That's That's part of the confusion of the present day uh, cultural commissariat, which is that as long as you're standing in opposition to conservative ideas, however you might slice them, your ideas are legitimate. So if your idea is that sex workers, um, you know, should have should have equal what, whatever you want to call it, like should be unionized and have OSHA regulations and and be treated like any other worker. You're doing that as a you know to, to, to stick a middle finger in the eye of you know Christians who have these retrograde ideas about sexuality or something like that or you know religious people wherever you want to slice it uh, and, but if you want to say that it's uh, white supremacy and that women are exploited in this totally in this way that is systematic and has, has been since uh, the dawn of time, it's because men control everything and that too is a perfectly acceptable view in certain quarters because it's only only conservatives who think that that's perfectly acceptable i'm now going to defend the idea that asians are under assault from white supremacy where we began which is the assault on asians in education is white supremacy because the people whose axe is not gored when it comes to asians using their commitment to education As the way that they they can rise, their children, their families can rise out of poverty and into affluence and to become fully part of the American experiment through education is being systematically attacked and injured by people, white people, wealthy white people, who are not affected by what happens at the selective high schools in New York City or are not affected by the affirmative action decision making. At Harvard, since Harvard is now 43% legacy, 43% of Harvard kids who go to Harvard had parents or grandparents who went to Harvard. You know what that is? That is white supremacy. That is white privilege in its purest form. And it happens at all these institutions and all these colleges. And so they want <clears throat> to futz around on the margins because it is more acceptable to them that these rules be bent in the favor of, of African-Americans and Hispanics and whoever else they might consider a more, you know, a more appropriately victimized population that they want to help and, you know, and, and and sort of treat as special exceptions. And the only way to do that is to screw Asians and they don't care. And you know why they don't care? Because they got a lot of Asians breathing down their necks at work. That's why. They got a lot of Asians breathing down their necks at at the bank, or you know, or wherever at the engineering. Fr- they don't care. They don't like them either. You saw this in the testimony and the stuff that was dug up in the Harvard lawsuit about how, you know, they're unsmiling. You know, they they're not really like us. They're sort of unsmiling and they don't really they don't they don't socialize. They're not they don't create the campus community that we want or that is really appropriate to us. What is but, that that is white supremacy? <clears throat> that is the definition of white supremacy. It is an effort to retard the progress of minority peoples whose introduction into the American elite challenges the numeric position of the American elite as it was constituted. those were That was Jews for the first half of the century and it is, of the first half of the 20th century and it is Asians
2: now pretty much from 1975 to the present. Um, and, and much like the uh, effort to exclude Jews and to beat them up on the streets, um, the, another similarity between uh, what's going on between the two groups. Um, the idea here is not just that they don't like them, um, it's that they're fine because they seem to be uh, employed and have power um, they are not um, put upon the way that um, uh, other other minorities are It is this um, idea that uh, uh, Asians like Jews are sort of hyper capable they don't need they don't they don't they don't need our help they don't need uh, they don't, if, if anything you know, uh with the ha- throwing in a little handicap is 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 the way to go
0: and they're not asking for help that's nope. that's the whole There's... joke of this is that the Jews of previous eras and the Asians of today are not asking for help all they want is to be scored on a test that lets them get into the better school and but so they... what 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 do you do if you are the white supremacist mayor of new york city with your patronizing filthy view of race relations and 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 the positions of people and all of that, you want to throw, you want to get rid of the test because the test is not fair. Because guess what,
1: non whites do best on it, not whites, non whites, Asians. But, but this is this exposes something that the, the tenuousness of the coalition that that you're describing right now, which is you know progressive white liberals who are happy to see certain privileges uh, uh, left untouched. So they ally themselves with the kind of anti-racist brigade and protect affirmative action for some races but not others, and then they'll they'll let you know they're happy to see Asian numbers go down. But this is a tenuous proposition because as we've already seen most recently this week with the response to these murders, a lot of the anti-racist advocates like Ibram Kendi and the Nicole Hannah Joneses, these folks are now saying. Well, wait a minute. Okay, so now we're 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 all together again. The Asians and the blacks are all together against white supremacy. But, you know, during the election, Hispanics and Asians who voted the wrong way were white adjacent. So there's this constantly shifting metric depending on what the political issue is. And that is not sustainable. Um, for long-term coalition building with regard to things like affirmative action, testing, excellency, all the stuff we're talking about. And look, I mean, as a, as a parent of white kids, I am happy to see the Asian kids surpass the white kids. That's what this country is supposed to be about. When you're given an opportunity, if you have a, a culture and a community that really enforces the importance of education, they should succeed. That's the whole point. So the fact that they're being prevented is is horrible. Horrible. It should have nothing to do with race. It should have to do with excellence. And the thing is, I don't think the anti the anti-racists see excellence as a an example of white supremacy when you start looking at things like testing. So I'm not sure how they're going to square that circle. And I don't think they like legacy admissions either on the anti-racist side. So that's not going to last. I don't I don't see that lasting.
0: I, I something just occurred to me, and Abe, I, I, it just popped into my head, and I, I don't know if this is if this is really uh, fair, but when you look at uh, this balance between uh, Asians and African Americans and Hispanics, it seems to me that. Uh this is some weird inversion of Animal Farm. Right? What what it, what is it that the uh, Napoleon what, what is it that the that the animals in Animal Farm realize as they are structuring this communist society, right? Some animals are more equal than others. That's the key, right? Cuz everyone's equal, but some are more equal than others. So here we have this question which is maybe here some people are more victims than, you know, everyone's a victim except white people, but some are more victims than others. And now we're we're in a position where this week, at this moment, in part also because of this rise in these Asian, in these attacks, street attacks on Asians and all of that, we are having a moment at which Asians are saying, right now we are more victimized. And Nicole Hannah-Jones and Ibram Kendi are not going to let that pass. That is why they're saying we're all in this together for a while. But they're not going to let this pass. They don't the Asians don't get to be victims like they are. Asians weren't brought over on slave ships. Were they? They came here voluntarily. Or maybe they didn't. I who cares? It doesn't matter. Like don't you're not going to you're not going to take my premier victim status away from me. So that's my you know one minute intellectual theory here. Um, what do you?
2: Where do you? I think it's a good one. There's a, there was also the question you know over the summer by 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 people um uh like uh Hannah Nicole Jones about uh are age Nicole Hannah Jones Nicole Hannah Jones sorry um uh actually considered people of color is that is that what we mean when we talk about people of color? Um, it is as you say. It is this week because because they're having a problem but but you know uh, under other circumstances it's like don't don't muzzle in on our on our on our victimhood uh, you know
0: another one minute intellectual theory uh, this by the way i'm using this term like you guys and people have any idea what it is there was a book in the 1970s a huge hit book called the one minute manager it was a uh, you know it was a business book uh you know self-help business book and my friend Todd Lindbergh and I came up with this with this idea for a parody of it called The One Minute Intellectual. And the idea was, like, come up with some insane grand theory that, you know, basically if you think about it for more than a minute – it collapses and crumbles in your hands. It's like too big. But uh, but kind of, it's fun the minute that you come up with it and then maybe you can like direct, divert a conversation so that you become the king of the conversation. So this is, that's the one. So here's my one minute intellectual theory about this also, which is, so what is it that Asians, what is it that we know about Asians in schooling, right? Which is that they work their asses off and they they insist that their kids work their asses off. And if they're not working their asses off in school, they also go off to Asian school. They go off to learn Korean language or Chinese language after school. And then they come home and they work till one o'clock in the morning. And in, in New York City, they get up at six and they have to be on a subway train for two hours where they do their homework and then they get to school and they're in school and then they go back to their to their ethnic school, and then they go home, and this is their life. And then on the weekends, they work in their parents' store or or whatever. And so this is how this is this is how it goes, right? So they work their asses off, and they do well. And weirdly, and systematically, in Voxland and everywhere else, there is suddenly this work is bad. You know, work doesn't. There's no dignity to work. There's no dignity to hard work. Everybody should get a ten thousand dollar check from the government instead of like what, going off pretending that there's some dignity in making your own money and there's dignity in hard labor. Do you think there's some connection here cuz I don't know like I hadn't really thought of this before but I you know uh you know people are very people in the sort of, in the sort of upper ranks of the intelligentsia are now very dismissive of the value of hard work as a way of 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 improving your situation. Whereas 25 years ago, the Clinton line was always, and the middle-class revolt of the 90s was always, you work hard and play by the rules, and we should eliminate all the barriers that exist. As long as you work hard and play by the rules, you should be able to prosper in the United States. But work hard was part of it. You didn't just get to be prosperous. You had to have, you had to make a contribution to your own well-being.
1: But this is why equity is now popular and equality is losing ground, because it it, it tracks that same impulse that you just described, I think, really well, which is that you don't you start by looking at the outcomes, you break them down by race, and then you start your argument comes from the assumptions about the outcomes that you make. So if you see outcomes where Asians are outperforming African-Americans, even though those Asians actually come from a, a poor backgrounds bad neighborhoods but they work they do all the things that you suggest and, and they're passing the test then that must be the test so we get rid of the test we'll get rid of the test well it's working backwards and it's having equality of outcomes as the standard and then a further overlay of race on that and that is just not what our system has really ever been not to say our system is perfect as we know the meritocracy is deeply corrupt and, and has lots of challenges but if you remove anything that that smacks of Excellence or comparison, because I think that's the other part here that, that nobody wants to talk about in terms of education. If you remove the ability to compare, then you can just claim that you know now we've now we've made equality possible because we're not all you know competing or comparing. Um, and that's a recipe for, a, for a, a demoralized society down the line, I think.
0: Absolutely. Well, you know if we uh, the the original moral society or the original society that structured itself, on the basis of a moral code rather than, rather than other rules and uh, other ideas about organization was, were of course the, uh, the, the Hebrews who got the uh, the tablets down uh, from Mount Sinai during the Exodus. And that is part of the story of the telling how Judaism's essential book reveals the meaning of life by Mark Gerson, the book I, be, I will be talking to you about until Passover dawns uh, at the end of next week. Um, so in Mark's book, he goes through the Haggadah, the Passover Seder guide, uh, history, text, authority, um, and 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 teases out from it hundreds of strands of interesting and provocative uh, issues that are raised by this question of what it means to live a good life um, and what historical experience can teach people in the present the historical experience of their ancestors can teach people in the present about uh, the way the world works and how you are supposed to relate to others and how you are supposed to treat um, others and how you are supposed to live a, a good life, which is what the Ten Commandments are, of course, all about. They are they are a they are they are the original moral code that says this is how you are supposed to live. Or these are the things you cannot do if you are to li- lead lead a good life. So that is the subject of Mark Gerson's The Telling. Um, a uh, you got you still got a week and a half to get it to plow through it to find interesting things to talk about at your Passover Seder um, with people and uh, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you know download the audiobook whatever you got to do the telling by mark Gerson um, guys uh, n- uh, a new uh, CDC official or I, I can't remember where-, where he works now but Tom Frieden um, who uh, known to New Yorkers as the guy who said that people should pay two thousand dollars if they wanted to drink a large soda Um not a not yet another public health official that i despise but nonetheless is now a senior health official in the biden administration and announced today that the three feet separation is just as good as the six foot separation which of course is a key finding for any effort to reopen schools um i was by the way listening yesterday to all things considered on npr and uh they were going through what is in the stimulus bill about schools and it's like you know what there are teeth in this bill there to te- you know there's all this money to reopen schools but the clock is ticking so once you get the money you have 30 days in which to develop a plan to reopen the schools so let's just say for the sake of argument it's now March 18th right so let's say for the sake of argument that these school systems aren't going to get the money until april 1st so they have till may 1st to come up with a plan for the full reopening of schools which then close for the summer four weeks later that's some teeth what a fantastic set of choppers they put in that bill huh that's really amazing those are cheap dentures fantastic Anyway, yeah, so the
3: three feet thing does matter insofar as um, if your school is partially reopened for in-person education, you have to probably stagger the rates at which kids can attend schools, which means they're still going to be hybridized and virtual on certain days because you only have so much room in a classroom. You have to keep kids out or you have to keep them in an annex room where they're still learning virtually. So the the rule matters quite a bit. And it has been in place being tested tested on children. We're testing on children. Um, the the extent to which this is a, is a valuable policy in places like Ohio and elsewhere around the country. And it's been found to be pretty uh, effective and efficient. And people have been talking about this in, in my area. have been talking that this is coming down the pike any minute now for the last six weeks, Um, So it's not like this is an untested thing that nobody knew anything about when this is this is an inevitability that the Biden administration is merely acknowledging far too late, in my view, but at least they're doing it. Um, But it is extraordinarily frustrating to hear people talk about school reopenings as though we have to make a distinction between open and sort of open and hybridized because the administration does this and the people who are comfortable with the status quo do this, where they talk about how many schools are actually open. It's like 80% of schools are open, even though their kids are going only a few days a week. Maybe they're only going till one o'clock in the afternoon. Um, we don't have a, a common definition of what open is, which seems ludicrous to me because open is open five days a week, 3 p.m. closing. That used to be it a year ago. That was the definition And now we have no universal definition.
1: Yeah, the only... No, this is a really important point that I was bringing up because... Certainly here in D.C., schools are called open if you can send your kid one day a week to do his or her virtual learning in a classroom that's overseen by a hired proctor. You don't ever see a teacher in that classroom, but it is technically open because you can walk inside and do your virtual learning there. Which, look, I'm not, I am not—I don't want to downplay that for families where the parents have to work outside the home. They don't have the option of working at home. This is hugely valuable that they even opened up the physical space, a, a little bit of time for parents to send kids there safely. That's fine. But the only thing you need to know about this change of rule is that the one consistent opponent of changing this rule has been the American te- uh, American Federation of Teachers, the Teachers Union. Randy Weingarten has been all over the six-foot rule. She's been you know, kind of trying to stoke fear and anxiety about changing the rule. She's been all over the news media, which has been lobbing softball questions about, oh, are you concerned? What do you think about this? The New York Times has done this. The National Public Radio has done this with her. That is all you need to know. It is the last a uh, sort of domino to fall in the teachers' union's arguments about reopening schools, because there is no scientific evidence that it's unsafe to do so at this point. Teachers are all getting vaccinated, as they should be. Um, uh, you know, Throughout the summer, there'll be more adult vaccinations. Eventually, we will have vaccine for kids. This is what this is. It's a political cudgel for the unions, and to see it fall will be the end for them. And as parents bring lawsuits in places like San Diego... Schools and the unions are required to present evidence for their reason for keeping schools closed, and they don't have any. They yeah,
3: no, no. Any. Randy White, Wine Weingarten is out there very publicly lobbying the, the administration against their existing guidelines for reopening schools, but certainly about the six feet rule, because in her words, many districts haven't been able to meet other guidelines among those other guidelines are retrofitting these institutions with ventilation systems that would keep them closed for years on end while we do environmental impact studies and we go through the courts and then we eventually get around to constructing something and retrofit all these schools with this ventilation system. It is a recipe for keeping schools schools closed in perpetuity. And that is what they want.
0: Okay. Let's talk about why they, uh, why they want it. Here's a theory. One minute intellectual theory again. Uh, when you don't care about education anymore, because what you think schools are about is uh, political equity is, is is being some kind of weird reflection of new values about political equity. Um, what do they need to be in school for? Okay, you're not teaching anybody anything. Teaching is a long is a process, a long range process of going through books, learning, you know, building on the previous day's lesson and going on to the next day's lesson and all of this and a kind of systematic, long-range effort to create the neural pathways and the logical pathways that explain how these things work in people's heads and get them ingrained. And that's where schooling comes from, if you believe that that is what it's for, But if you don't think that that's what school is for, then whether they're in or out of school or you're in or out of school doesn't matter as long as what they're getting is some form of propaganda, you know, sort of blared into their brains. And that doesn't have to be systematic because, of course, it's propaganda, which means that it's simple and it's distorted and it's, you know, it's, it's created not for the purposes of... Uh, enlarging one's perspective but kind of narrowing it really and making you think that there's only one way to think about
2: something one minute intellectual abe ruling i think that's fair i think it's well i mean prop i mean the thing about propaganda is it's it's um the the goal is to get people to parrot it not to think about it not to ingest it um and, and not to um uh uh um you know develop one's thinking so yeah no you you don't requ- propaganda does not require uh education in fact in some ways it, it, the, the the two are, are at odds the, the joke here of course though is that um for so long what people what you'd hear from um many people on the left who would talk about the injustices of our society and how to write them was education, educate. We've got to educate. If the the, the the inequalities in education, if we could just educate, if we could just educate these kids, that would be, that would resolve everything, right? That's, that's that, it is now the exact opposite, right?
3: But I want to play Todd Lindbergh here and suggest the counter, counter narrative, which is that this is ongoing in private schools too, perhaps more aggressively, the indoctrination, particularly in the anti-racism uh, creed, uh, is ongoing very aggressively in private schools, which are open because you pay for them. Oh, it is! So it is the simplest. Explanation I said my like kids the pri- right. So, isn't the simplest explanation that these public servants, as they were, um, just want to draw a paycheck?
1: The the erosion of trust and the erosion of goodwill between parents and their children's teachers is going to be one of the long term effects of this pandemic. I think, and I say this. With a lot of respect for individual teachers my kids have had and that I know other people's kids have had, there are a lot of great teachers out there. The fact that I think a lot of them now need to think about the job they do and the profession they're in and the education departments from which they graduate as institutions that are actively hostile to what they claim to be, which is educating children is their priority and the unions in particular have shown their hand in an incredibly egregious way that there I hope will be long-term repercussions for maybe there won't be but there should be I do think though that that um it is the unions here I mean there's no other explanation for it there's plenty of data now in about how the 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 areas that have the strongest most powerful teachers unions are the ones that have stayed closed the longest longest we know this like and and the fact that Randy Weingarten is panicking and demanding meetings with the CDC to discuss recommendations shows us that that's the case. She's worried now because that is it for them. They have. They, there's nothing else they can do now.
2: Um, you know, I have a this. I, I wonder what the ramifications of all this are on who will be going into teaching from here on out, Right? Um, are you going into it to with hopes of staying home? Are you going into it now to to um, to to get to get in on the propaganda, um, or are you just staying away from it because uh, it's this conflicted, kind of hated, uh, sort of uh, de- despised field now in the country? I what think you- we can be charitable. I think
3: we can be charitable on that and, and suggest that most people go into this profession because it's a calling and because they genuinely. Believe I'm saying going forward. I'm trying to do. I'm saying going for- Yeah. I agree with you. yeah. Uh, Yeah. And and, I mean, like uh, we've seen, for example, my own personal experience is that the teaching staff at my kids' public school, uh, they're my my, uh, first grader, uh, got a lot younger over the last year. Um, There there was uh, her average age, I would suggest, probably of of the teachers in that school was in the 40s, mid 40s. And now it's in the 20s. Um, And that comports with the idea that this is, uh, first of all, an early career stage, but also that you really want to do this in in order to have an impact on on kids and not because you're trying to propagandize them or just draw a paycheck and stay home. Uh, This is really a union issue. It's not a teacher's issue.
1: Well, and it's a, it's also a structural issue for public education in that a lot of the people who do just sit there and draw checks and are happy to Zoom every single workday for the rest of their lives are administrators, right? They're, they're in the main office. They draw right. salaries of hundreds of thousands of dollars that are paid for by taxpayers, and they don't ev- ever set foot in a classroom. They just analyze and, what everyone right. else is doing.
3: And a clever political strategy would be to exacerbate those cleavages, to create tension between the workforce and the representatives and unions, because there is tension. And uh, people who are suspicious and hostile towards these organizations would be better served not attacking the people who are underserved by their unions, but telling them
0: they are underserved by their unions. You know, there are two, 60 years ago, I think 60 years ago this year, uh, Bell Kaufman published one of the great, satirical novels uh it doesn't really read as a satirical, but it is called up the down staircase about the first year uh a young teacher who comes to teach in a school in east harlem um uh in 1961 and uh the book is told entirely through except for the letters that this young teacher who was clearly some version of bell kaufman the writer uh it's told through memos and uh, inter-office memos uh, at, at, at the school. Uh, and then she writes letters to a friend of hers explaining what's going on during the year. Um, it's a fantastic book. You can download it and read it on your Kindle. I did a couple of years ago. It's a it's a, it's a a small masterpiece of a book. She was actually Shalom Aleichem's granddaughter, which is an interesting little detail. She died a couple of years ago at like the age of 102. And what this book is about is about how you have a young, idealistic teacher who is being driven slowly insane by the by modern bureaucracy, uh, by the imposition of a of a school system that is now being destroyed by modern bureaucratic rules and the latest in fashionable rules and principles about how to run things that are there to make it impossible for somebody like her who is committed to being an educator, to educate normally because she has to file this form and she has to do this and she has to do that. That's, that's 60 years ago. Um, if you follow along this logic, so, so that was bureaucracy. Bureaucracy was the enemy then. And then over time, however you want to look at it, the relation between teachers and students in a classroom is a very mysterious one if it's good. Uh, you don't quite know wh- what it is that makes a good teacher, how they command the authority over a class, how they inspire, how these qualities can work together, because that's also a sort of mysterious thing. Because you can imagine somebody who can impose authority but can't inspire, or the other way around, but ev- all good teachers sort of have to be able to do both, and you know these are o- odd qualities, right? So over time, if you sort of go through the three generations since, we have um, the federal government coming in with rules and curriculum authorities futzing around with curricula and trying to centralize everything. Again, more and more bureaucracy, just a question of who runs the bureaucracy. Is it the local principal? Is it the school system? Is it the Department of Education? Is it the State Department of Education? Is it the unions? Is it the principal's unions? What is it? All you know about this system is that it is designed whatever they care about. Education is the last thing that is the matter of importance. It's all about what are the work rules? When do you get out? What time? How how is someone going to keep kids quiet in the cafeteria? All of that. Not how do we teach them to learn? How do we teach them? How do they learn? How can we get, how can we in the general system, help this young teacher. All she wants to do is help these kids who are working class or, or worse in this school, um, you know, get through the day and learn something and transcend the individual circumstances that they have. And we're in the same place. Only everything has suddenly gotten vastly more extreme with this bizarre insistence on the part of professional teachers that, in the name of their own safety, they be allowed to exist as some kind as some kind of indolent aristocracy, choosing the form and manner of the work they do for the hoi polloi.
2: But that's what they I get mean to choose it. Yeah. So, if you wanted to make a difference, as the as the teachers that uh, Noah was talking about um, do. Uh, why would you go into this now at this point? This th- this would be the last thing you would you would want to do,
0: right? Well, one way of dealing with it is that people do it, but they do it individually. They they start homeschooling because they they the, the children their children are their most precious resource, and they're not going to right. roll the dice on you know. Uh, but most of us can't do that. We don't we don't have the either emotional wherewithal or the financial wherewithal or whatever it is to to to. Put ourselves in that position with with our kids, and and uh, you know it's uh, it's just an interesting thing. The other interesting part of this, not to, to filibuster again, is uh, one of the uh, the cha- the broadening of American life, the opening of American life to Jews, to women, to to you know how uh, there is a whole thing the the world that was unambiguously damaged b- by. Um, weirdly damaged by the fact that American society became more open and more egalitarian was schooling because schooling was where educated women who wanted to have a career and didn't want to stay home, or often they wanted to work until they stayed home or whatever. um, Or, you know, people who were, used to be called spinsters, all of that. That was where they went. That was where educated women went to work was to teach people to teach people in schools, because they all they could do was work in servile positions in the workplace. They could be shop girls, they could be secretaries, they could be nurses or assistants, but they couldn't be somebody standing in a position of authority in front of a classroom, right? So that's women. Jews in the first half of the century were banned from couldn't teach in a lot of universities, couldn't go to work in a lot of law firms, couldn't do a lot of stuff like that, and the New York City school system, which was the best public school system in the world for half a century, was dominated by Jewish teachers. Just as you could imagine, you could have a school system dominated by Asian teachers now, except there are no real, you know, it, it was the same thing where, because they were denied access to other stuff, um, you know that they, they couldn't. They couldn't go on. So, guys, I gotta. I gotta run for Christine, Abe No, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.